HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're kicking off our end-of-year fundraising drive with a special discount offer from our partner, Heritage Foods USA, an online farm-to-table butcher shop specializing in heritage breed antibiotic-free meats. Donate to Heritage Radio Network before Sunday, December 4th at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and we'll send you an exclusive discount code for 10% off all Heritage Foods products. Help ensure another year of great food radio, get 10% off delicious and sustainably produced meat, and support small family farms all in one shot. How's that for a holiday miracle? Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate by Sunday, December 4th to make your contribution. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Defining American cuisine has always been puzzling, and most descriptions come up as bland, simple flavors. But Sarah Lohman is here to shed light on some surprising flavors, old and new, on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And indeed, if you were to describe American cuisine, what would you say? Hmm... Pot pie, mashed potatoes, roast, a big roast. Um, Some people would say hamburgers and french fries, right? All without a lot of spice or high flavors. But Sarah Lohman, um, a a historic gastronomist, right? Mm -hmm. Historic gastronomist. Culinary historian is fine, too. Okay, that's a (laughs) mouthful for me to get out otherwise. Um, She has written a book. Uh, kind of, and did a sleuthing project on discovering some flavors that indeed are now American, are as common on the American pantry as as any other, and um, and also some old flavors that have been around for a long time that fell out of flavor. Mm-hmm. Her new book is called Eight Flavors: 
The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Sarah is, um, as I said, she's a a culinary historian, a food historian. Um, She likes to, you like to reproduce dinners and and recipes and and give events, but also a lot of research on some, you've been on the show a couple of different times. Yeah, a couple times. Yeah, interesting um, backgrounds into food that people wouldn't ordinarily think of and discover. Yeah, most recently we uh, sat down and talked about the history of funeral food. Funeral food, okay. Not to be a downer, but (laughs) it it would have been great for Halloween. It was kind of spooky, actually. (laughs) But um, eight flavors I I find it's really um, you really did an interesting job as I say of when I in the beginning of old flavors and new flavors but mm-hmm. not that new mm-hmm. it's just that we've incorporated them into our uh, daily regime of cooking and we will we'll mention those as we go on Great. and the book is coming out December 6th next week when, next week on Tuesday but you can pre-order it now from wherever books are sold okay. Amazon Barnes and Noble or your local independent bookseller all right some of these flavors that you talk about as i said they are really part of the everyday american kitchen and right. then when you think about it a lot of them are perhaps were perhaps thought of as ethnic flavors at one time right. and i'm thinking particularly soy sauce or right. chili powder or sriracha but then again we are those flavors we're we are a mosaic of people right? right i think one of the big arguments i make in the book is for this broader definition of not only what american food is but who an american is right. i'd say the two flavors that get called out uh, the most on are curry powder and sriracha uh, curry powder which actually we've been using in america for over 200 years and we've had immigrants from India coming to this country for over 100 years. Well, the, and the Brits actually brought it with them because they've been using it for much longer. It, right. Absolutely. It really came to this country through our Anglo heritage, too, before it came with people from India. Um, and the other is sriracha, and people don't really see these as American ingredients. Oh, well, that's Southeast Asian. So I am looking at these two ingredients and saying, well, you know, sriracha is sort of the end game of a long history of hot sauces in this country and a love of spicy hot pepper. And when you look at curry and see that not only Anglo-Americans have been using it for hundreds of years, but other people who have lived in this country for a very, very long time are using it. How, why are we saying these flavors aren't American then? So what is behind that idea that we want to other these parts of um, these foods that have been a part of our culture for a very long time? And then there are some flavors that kind of fell out of fashion that were very interesting and added a really you know an interesting depth to the cooking and we can talk about those too but what what made you what what happened well how did you how did you (laughs) get on this track of discovering some of these flavors and why eight why eight so uh I, I think it also comes from how what you were saying I like to do is a recreation and I'll recreate meals or menus. I come from a living history background, which means in my late teens and early 20s, um, every summer I would put on a costume and I'd go live in the year 1848 at a museum in Ohio. And uh, what happens in that sort of setting, whether it's where I worked or Colonial Williamsburg or Plantation, is that I find that the employees, the people putting the costumes on, are often learning as much by doing as the visitors who are coming to this museum day to day. At least that was my experience. It put a 
personality on history. It made it human for me. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I was first introduced to historic food. We cooked in a, a wood-burning cast iron stove from historic recipes. So if we're going all the way back, that was the core of my interest, this idea of immersion to learn, especially to learn about not only the past, but I think it's a great way to learn about other cultures too, contemporary cultures. This idea occurred very specifically to me when um, one day, years later, I was living in New York, doing my thing, doing my culinary history thing. And I just had this moment where I realized that I had not really seen vanilla in any baking recipes before the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And I literally like pulled the books down my shelf and started looking and I'm like, no, it's not here. And I said, okay, but when does that happen? And I noticed by the end of the 19th century, vanilla was being used how we use it today and in the quantities really that we use it today. And so that is when I said, okay, something must have happened there. And I got really in- interested by how how our food tastes different in different time periods um, and what accounts for those changes, these pivotal moments, and I think more importantly, pivotal people um, that have changed American cuisine. So I, I kind of then created this timeline where I was looking at cookbooks in different eras and picking out the ingredients that seemed to pop up a lot. I ended up with about 30 different ingredients that then I was able to narrow down pretty easily because it sort of would jump out to me how one ingredient like soy sauce can represent this larger cultural shift of increased immigration from China or garlic, for example, can represent what it was like in America at the turn of the century and our attitudes. Um, so I realized that these flavors were not only um, emblematic of larger chronological shifts in our history, um, but also the I uh, noticed that they were the most commonly used flavors. I used a handy tool called Google Ngram Viewer, which plots the occurrence of words on a graph. You can set parameters, American books from 1800 to, to the year 2000 is what I did. And I just looked. How often did it pop up in, exactly. in recipes and things? Yeah, um, it, That's very interesting. Uh, I mean, the whole book in, is interesting. And, and the um, the flavors, not all of them being ethnic mm-hmm. flavors, and I say some some were in common use back in early America, absolutely, and then fell out of favor, and then you know picked up again. All of course coming from other places, um, sure. And our, and you mentioned our British, her- the, you know, the the original, you know. Dutch or British you But know, even not necessarily coming from other places. I mean, again, with sriracha, uh, people think it's exotic, yeah. but it's made entirely in Southern California. And, of course, um, chili peppers are native to the to the United States, too. Hey, a guy named McElhaney made a fortune <laughs> exactly. of Tabasco. Right? And Tabasco was founded in the 1860s, yeah. too. So talking yeah. about your idea of American cuisine as thought of as bland, well, we've had hot sauce since really before the 1860s, but one of our major brands was founded in the 19th century. Right, and so many of these flavors you know, America has gone through, um, ho- hopefully not again, but there were many periods of xenophobia. Sure. And a lot of the flavors that represented these ethnic cultures were eschewed by, you know, by Amer- those Americans who were already here. Gar- when I'm thinking about garlic, garlic, you mentioned in your book. Yeah. It's an excellent example. And it also goes with this idea of something that was used and then fell out of favor. So garlic for a lot of American history was thought of as um, medicinal. And even in some early cookbooks, they say, Ooh, this is not good for eating. But on the other hand, uh, Mary Randolph's book, The Virginia Housewife, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, 1824, mm-hmm. 26, mm-hmm. somewhere in there, um, really one of the, the earliest major American cookbooks. She has a recipe where she uses like a whole like bulb of garlic in her recipe. So there is this question of like, all right, her book is very highly seasoned. 
By the end of the 19th century, though, we have discovered domestic science. We know what calories are. We know what nutrients are. So there becomes this real emphasis on creating balanced meals and it's de-emphasized creating delicious meals. So the nu- the nutritional content is the most important. Um, and spice, since it's not in, in their idea of food science, providing any sort of nutritional benefits is unnecessary. So we really see a decline in highly flavored foods in this country by the end of the 19th century. Then we have this massive Italian immigration uh, between 1880 and 1920. And so garlic, a big part of Italian and Italian-American cuisine, becomes really emblematic of that. There was a lot of xenophobia against Italian immigrants to the point that in 1924, we essentially banned Italian immigration, putting in place a very, very strict quota that only let uh, about 2,000 people in every single year, um, whereas about 10 times that amount had been coming in each of the previous years. And it was very explicitly um, racist, is what Mm -hmm. this law was. So this garlic was seen as being the symbol of um, a group of people that were not thought of as being interested in becoming American. In fact, nearly half of all Italian immigrants didn't stay here and were eventually banned from this country because they were perceived as being an undesirable class of people to come here. And their stinky food. And their stinky food. <laughs> stinky Italians, right? This is idea. And now, in a way, we can, we can laugh at that. We look back, we, you know, at Italian culture, and in many ways, we're very unaware that that's how people felt in the time. Um, interestingly, in the modern era, there's a little bit of a shift in these two opposing ideas, um, that food represents cultures that we don't want to be a part here. It can, especially strongly flavored food, strongly smelling food. At the same time, in the country today, we often accept the food before we accept the immigrant themselves. Um, I don't know about you, but I buy hummus pretty much every time I go to the grocery store, right? And we have things like falafel and an increasing appearance of spices like sitar and cardamom. So these are all major flavors that are coming from the Middle East. So we are simultaneously living in a world where there is, especially recently, pretty constant violence against Muslims in this country, at least in words, if not actions, but both. But at the same time, we are now very, very commonly eating foods that were brought here by these people and originated in the Middle East. And that, um, I mean, that's rough when you look at it, when you think that we're sort of missing this link between how our cuisine has changed because of the people who have come here and are simultaneously pushing away this group of Americans that have every right to be in this country. That's right. Um, You uh, talked about... um some of the early dishes in your book, um, you know, you're talking about vanilla yeah. and how that was, it had a lag time. Yeah. Um, and that's a lovely story. Before we get to that story, let's, let's name, let's name the, the, the eight. eight flavors because I think that's sure. just, okay. So I'm going to use my cheat sheet here. Okay. <laughs> I don't expect you to have them memorized. I'm All not right. quizzing you. Okay. You do, I'm sure. So I do. So chronologically, right. um, they as to when they appear in American kitchens and in, in increased popularity, we have black pepper. Uh, vanilla, chili powder, curry powder, soy sauce, garlic, monosodium glutamate, and sriracha. Now, the monosodium glutamate yeah. is probably the one I don't find in my cabinet, I guess. But but I you might I, be surprised. Yeah, I, well, in it would be included. In exactly, exactly. But I would challenge most people to look in their kitchen cabinet mm-hmm. and say. Oh, I have all these flavors mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. That's right, and they're pretty much considered standard usage. 
ingredients. Yeah, and, and if so. you don't think you have MSG, don't just check the um, prepackaged food, but you yeah. should. It's there. But also things like um, Marmite and Vegemite um, yeast extracts, mm-hmm. that's pure monosodium glutamate. It's a naturally occurring ingredient. Um, it's and not a chemical. Well, well not, it not is a, a chemical. Not, not an artificial, not an artificial <laughs> exactly. additive. It's not, not artificial synthesized, chemical. I right. think, is important. Right. Even when it's created in a lab, it's an extract mm-hmm. from a fermentation process. So um, it's often put on labels as yeast extract. It's the same chemical different name, different source too. So you might think that it's not in your cabinet, but it's absolutely there. Yeah. And you talked about um, a lot of the early recipes did not contain vanilla because, and and you're going to explain that. We're only going to tell a couple of the stories because we want people to get the book and and read the stories. But, um, but But people were using other spices to add flavor. Yeah, uh, not just spices, but we can even say extract. So Mm -hmm. we use a lot of vanilla extract when we bake. Vanilla extract didn't come about until the second half of the 19th century. So before that, before the 1840s, every place that we use vanilla today, we used rose water, which really surprises people because today we do not think of rose water as an American ingredient. Again, we think of it coming from the Middle East or perhaps India and associated with those cuisines. But if you had said that to an American of the 18th century, they would have been like, what are you talking about? Like mm-hmm. this, I have it in my cabinet. I use it all the time. Um, it was a liquid extract, so it was easy to use with baking. Um, and rose petals could be grown domestically, so it's something that could be made domestically in this country. So it was a very common, very popular flavoring. So how did we go from rose water to vanilla? Well, um, vanilla is actually native to Central America, and uh, the Spanish had a monopoly on the vanilla trade. And people would take the plants and grow them in other places, particularly some of the French colonies off the coast of Africa. And the vines would grow in these tropical conditions, but they would blossom but never fruit. Vanilla beans are the seed pod of an orchid. Um, And these orchids, they weren't pollinating, people realized after a while. They thought, okay, there must be some native pollinator in Mexico that we don't have. So what do we do? So it took um, a very special person to figure this out. There was a plantation owner um, in uh, Ile de Bourbon, uh, which is, again, a French colony off the coast of Africa, and he had a slave named Edmund. And both the owner, Ferio Bayer Beaumont, and uh, Edmund were very interested in botany. Ferio gave him an education on the plantation. And uh, one day they were walking the plantation together, so the, the plantation master writes, and he noticed that his vanilla orchid had beans on it. And he asked Edmund how this happened. And Edmund said, I figured it out. And he had. (laughs) This boy, he was 12 years old at the time, 12 years old, figured out the hand pollination technique that we still use to this day. Vanilla is still hand pollinated. It has to be. A lot of things are, especially Mm -hmm. when you want to keep organic or, you know, or or, um, one variety of type. Which is also the, turns into some of the most expensive spices in the world often have to be hand processed. Um, So he created this. It's changed the world in terms of the vanilla industry. It changed American food food in terms of how it tastes, because now vanilla was more affordable because it could be grown in more places. And even extract, they were now, beans weren't as precious, so you could kind of chop them up, turn into an extract, which is a more cost-effective product than a single vanilla bean. Um, He gained his freedom in 1848, uh, but there were no opportunities for uh, free black men in either Réunion or here in the United States should a black man gain his freedom, Um, not even to mention a black woman. And he he died in poverty. 
So that to me, that is really what the Vanilla chapter focuses on, not just about how extraordinary this turning point was in terms of science, botany, technology, but I also really look at the lives of young black yeah. men in this country. How and how these things happened. Exactly. Who was, who was behind it? Exactly. How did it happen? Uh, before, well, and vanilla, I mean, being such an aromatic uh, it was used also, you know, perfumes and, mm-hmm. and all. But yeah. as you said, very expensive ingredients. Very so expensive. Was, yes. So in a way, um, naturally produced vanilla only counts for less than 5% of mm. the vanilla that we consume. Fragrances, flavors rely very heavily on vanillin, which is a, a very simple chemical compound that can be reproduced in a lab. Um, it traditionally, it comes from lignin, which is a chemical in wood. If you've ever, I always say, you know, if you taste... Um, bourbon and you taste vanilla notes that's actually actually oxidized lignin Mm -hmm. that is in that bourbon so this chemical is is placed in it's in many 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 other places and now we sort of pull it from other places and create synthesized vanillin vanillin is the main um, aromatic and flavor component in a vanilla bean it accounts for about two-thirds of our sensory experience of vanilla the other one-third is over 200 other chemicals and compounds that lend itself to aromatics and uh, to flavor. Well, we're glad that he did, (laughs) that he figured out the hand pollination. Prior to that, um, a lot of unusual things, or not unusual, they were very common in early America, Mm. um, but unusual to us today in our sweet recipes, a lot of more savory Mm. herbs and spices would be used to -hmm. flavor cookies and cakes. And you um, discovered a a recipe for black pepper in particular. Yes, yeah. Uh, Black pepper is the one that I really noticed that has now become a savory spice, but historically it was used along all the other spices coming from that part of the world. All the other furry spices like uh, cinnamon and ginger to a certain extent, um, cloves, they were all being sort of blended together. Black pepper was used historically in savory recipes as well. But the book I discovered this in is a collection of recipes that were owned by Martha Washington. They actually came from her first husband's family as a wedding gift given to her in 1747. And this is a valuable manuscript because, as you know, we don't have our first printed American cookbook until 1796. So to get information about what Americans reading before... Amelia Simmons. We'd have to tell our listeners. Oh, yes. Amelia Simmons, American (laughs) Cookery, 1796. It's available in its entirety online. You can look it up. And that's really considered not only the first cookbook written and published in America, but also really seems to focus on American ingredients, too. Um, Before that, we have to look at manuscripts. So that is why her collection of recipes is very helpful. And some of the recipes are would not only be 18th century, but it's thought that it stretches as far back to the late medieval period, like maybe looking at the 14th or 13th centuries, too. So one of the recipes I pulled for there was for cakes that can be kept in Ye House for six months to a year. Ye House. I I think I'm, yeah, Ye House. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Ye House is definitely a part of it. Um, And they were... they had as much ground spice as flour, so they were extremely decadent cookies for the time. To our modern palate, they were pretty disgusting, to be honest. And I did make them and put them in Yee House for a year, <laughs> and they were remarkably unperturbed when I opened them a year later. Kind of like that old, that old fruitcake sitting in the back of the That's cabinet, exactly right? what it was like. And, it was, and there is some comparison. They also had like dried and candied fruits, but you didn't like... 
the flavor also didn't change. It didn't mature like a fruitcake does. Anyway, if you're curious up on my blog, I modernized the recipe because I loved the idea of um, putting black pepper into a spice cookie. So sometimes when I make a historic recipe and I'm like, oof, this is bad, but I like this core idea, I create this modern version. I think it's very inspiring. Yeah, interesting. And it's not uncommon to see black pepper in um, old recipes for um, spice cake, yeah, um, yeah, gingerbread, things exactly. like that. Exactly, it'll, it'll come up in that. That's sort of, really what these were, sort of like a gingerbread cookie, a very, very dense cookie, and it's a trend that's coming back too. Um, there's been a couple recipes floating around. One in the New York Times for a devil's food cake with a black pepper icing too. So again, if you're interested in recipes, my blog, by the way, is four pounds flour. You can jump on there, and I'm posting all this week, really all this month, um, a lot of information that kind of didn't make it into the book. You know, my behind <laughs> the scenes a little bit. Um, um, so today I actually have some graphs up about um, where you can actually see where these flavors came into American cooking over time and kind of how they uh, waned in popularity and grew in popularity. It's all it's all all those data visualizations are up there today. Right. Well, we're going to talk about more of these stories when we come back after this short break. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous Alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sirchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Sarah Lohman. And Sarah has written a book called, uh, she's a historic gastronomist, culinary historian, and she's written a book called Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. And in this, Sarah, you, um, before we get on to the other, some of the other flavors, I wanted to mention you were saying that, obviously, Amelia Simmons, um, many of us know, in 1796, that was the first printed mm-hmm. cookbook. Mm-hmm. Published in America. Published in America. And there were other cookbooks published here, to be fair, just so there's not like culinary historian internet trolls, but they were written, they were British books that some had had updated chapters for American cooking and then were republished here in the States. She's the first author uh, who wrote a book in America. It was published in America and it was really about American cooking, 1796. Um, 
And there is, we had to rely on, we, and we still do rely on manuscripts. And I just wanted to mention there is a website that has put many of these manuscripts up online so you can research them online. And it's called, and with, you know, or go to the library. A lot of right. libraries have gotten them online yeah. as well, but not, not quite to the extent. The website I'm talking about is called Manuscript Cookbooks Survey. That's cookbooks, plural, survey, manuscriptcookbooksurvey.com. That's cool. And, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful site where you can access some of these old manuscripts. And I, I have heard of it. I can't wait to go and, and dig around. exactly what you found. I already have more projects than I know what to do with, but that's <laughs> what I do. I just keep adding more to the list. So, right. um, you, you know, we were talking about um, immigration and xenophobia, and um, there is a an interesting story that was written up mm-hmm. that you told um, and it's in the, that's in the book about mm-hmm. how we didn't accept the immigrant himself, mm. but of course his cooking became very popular and yeah. we like a lot. And that was kind of a bittersweet story very much. So as most, many of these are, um, so yet. you're talking about the story of Prince Ranji's smile. Yes, I yeah. am. Yeah, uh, that's a story I was really excited to tell and one that I was very surprised that there had not, there's been very, very, very little writing about this man up until this point. Mine is the first, but a colleague of mine has a book coming out about him sometime, and I'm really excited about it too because he is, um, I could only do one chapter and he's doing the whole book. Okay, so why, is, why am I so excited about this guy? So Smile was born uh, in what is today Pakistan, but at the time was in India. And uh, he ends up cooking in a very fine hotel in London. And uh, Lewis Sherry in 1899 goes to this hotel. Now, Sherry has probably, well, he would probably say the best restaurant in New York City at that time. It was maybe second only to Delmonico's. It was a very well-known, And there weren't too many at that time. <laughs> exactly. And it was very much focused on a high-end clientele. He's staying in London. He stays at this hotel, and he's basically like, Who, who's cooking this food? This is awesome. This is amazing. He didn't use the word awesome. Paraphrase. We yeah. don't know what happened. He <laughs> Today's po- lingo. Today's lingo. He poaches this chef, which was, he's a pretty young man at this point. I think he's only about 20 years old and says, you're coming to cook in New York City. And so this guy, Ranji Smile, comes and cooks in New York, and he is a sensation like from the beginning. Sherry gives him a place to cook in the kitchen. Um, he tells the French chefs that dominate to leave him alone, that this is Smile's spot. This is where he's going to cook. And Sherry's off offers this curry menu to New Yorkers in 1899. And there are some wonderful, what I would call like restaurant reviews, like food blogs about reporters going and having these experiences, not only talking about how much they like this really new food to them, um, because Smile really wanted to introduce what he thought was more authentic Indian cooking to America, but also like they genuinely talk about how like sexy this guy is, which I think (laughs) is really amusing too. Like everybody talks about how hot he is. He's got like all these girlfriends he's married like three times like he's really also kind of sensational in that regard too like he really he was in the gossip columns as much as he was um heralded for his cooking abilities he goes on to have this very successful career being famous not just in the city but he tours uh, the country doing cooking demos cooking for prestigious dinners um and is very 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 famous always says he wants to write a cookbook i haven't discovered that manuscript but i think i would fall over and die from happiness the day i did um and is is very famous. The bittersweet part of the story is I discovered um, a New York City Hall of Records, his application for citizenship. And it was amongst a group of documents in which the applications were denied. Mm. In this point in American history, it was very, um, if you were brown, it was difficult to get your citizenship because our constitution said you can be a naturalized citizen if you're white, 
And then later on, said you could be a naturalized citizen if you're black. But if you were somewhere in between, it was a really sort of difficult territory. So it depended really judge by judge. Some One judge might say, yes, you look white, you can be a citizen. Another might say, yes, you look black, you can be a citizen. Great. Another judge might say, no, you don't fall into either of those categories, you can't be a citizen. And there was a massive uh, court case that went to the Supreme Court in the early 19th century where all of these rulings were um, overturned because the Supreme Court decided that someone who is um, Asian, whether that's some um, Southeast Asian, like Smile was, or someone from China, Japan, Korea, could not be American according to the Constitution as written. So even men who had gotten their citizenship then had it revoked. So there's this moment where you where he's been in the country at this point for now 30 years, and he wants to be a citizen. He's got an American wife, and he's rejected. Shortly after that, um, prohibition hits, which really affected the restaurant industry, and pretty soon after, he leaves the country. And after that point there, he just kind of falls off the face of the earth in a way. I don't know what happened to him, but it's pretty heartbreaking that he spent more than half of his life in this country, and this country rejected him, mm. said that he could not become American. But we wanted to eat his food. We right? wanted to eat his food. We wanted to read about his love life. We wanted mm. to see him in person. We embraced him in all these other ways, but he was denied the chance to embrace the country himself. Interesting. I, that's that's what is really um, quite interesting about the book that it's not just a tale of flavors and foods and how right. they're used, but really the people behind it. And you, you right. say you, you put a face on it. And as you, in your early experience, you said, you yeah, know, you put a face on history because at the same time, it's, you know, what is food except to feed humans? It's made by people. It's for other people. So the stories are never about the food itself. It's about the people on the other end of that, the people behind those flavors. That's where the powerful stories are. All right. Um, what flavors do you feel have fallen flavors flavors and favors yeah what flavors that might have been used in early american cooking have sort of fallen out of favor uh, you mentioned rose water right. as being one. Rose water is a big one to the point where we don't even remember it's American anymore. Right. And it's also fascinating to see as more and more flavors come from the Middle East. In, in my conclusion, that's one of the flavors I prophesize might become an American flavor again. We're seeing it more. We're seeing it paired with cardamom. Uh, even there was an article in the New York Times a few years ago where they suggested replacing vanilla with rose water, which I thought was really great because it's this total throwback to 200 years ago. So you might be seeing a lot more rose water used outside of its sort of Indian or Middle Eastern context and and going back to its American roots, too. Um, Another one that's kind of a mystery is mace. I I don't talk about this in the book, but if if you've worked in culinary history like you have, Linda, um, you you see it all the time in Mm -hmm. early American recipes. Um, So what is it? Nutmeg is a fruit. I've never had the nutmeg fruit itself, but maybe someday. The nutmeg that we use is the seed of this nutmeg. And between the fruit and the seed, there is this red membrane. Um, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a like a dried netting. Right? Yeah, like on a dried netting. Or kind of, when it's on the nutmeg, it kind of looks like a brain to me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, look, look, up, look it up on the internet. See a picture of it. And it's this interesting spice that tastes a little bit like nutmeg, but it's also a little bit hotter, I would peppery. say, too. Mm-hmm. A little peppery, exactly. Beautiful color as well. And it was used just as commonly as nutmeg make was in historic America and like wait we just don't use it anymore you you'll see it again um you can it's easy to find in Indian spice stores and it's used quite a bit in the Caribbean too but not in mainstream American cooking um which really and I don't have an explanation some culinary historians call it the mace mystery 
sometimes it might be um i did read a story about black pepper and long pepper long pepper is another indian spice that right. used to be used pretty commonly not in america but in europe and uh, it sort of dwindled after chili peppers were introduced to Europe. And the historian that puts forth that story said, well, we just didn't need to have three spices that kind of tasted, tasted the same. The same right. You know, so we, we got rid of one. So that might be the story of, ma- of and not ma- making mace. And mace is so labor intensive. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can't grate it like nutmeg. You have to pound it and grind it. So maybe we just didn't need two spices that kind of tasted the same. We just picked the one that was easier to deal with. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Um, marjoram is one that. Yeah. Uh, you don't marjoram and savory those are great examples yeah, too um they're always in my my kitchen garden my herb garden outside yeah uh, yeah but you don't see that appear a lot in recipes no you don't um they historically were called the sweet herbs and they were used almost always to, f- to flavor poultry marjoram savory and sage and out of the three of those we only use sage but um especially in the 18th century and early 19th century it was these three herbs always together that was your stuffing for your turkey that's what you put on your boiled chicken um and we don't use marjoram and savory that much and interestingly if i sat here and thought about it i really couldn't describe the flavors to you mm. Her- herbal yeah. <laughs> right uh, there is a there is a fl- almost a floral yeah. kind of of essence to it um, you had mentioned in your book um, a beef stew that was lacking yeah. flavor yeah. when you tried a, a you know a, a, a um, renaissance or not a renaissance yeah, it was a, like, a revolutionary restaurant yeah and they give you a like, beef stew that didn't have that in it yeah that was in a way the kind of inspiration point for the rest of my life um years later in college i went to art school and i went to a five-year program a cleveland institute of art uh, and I had to come up with a thesis. And I knew I wanted to do something with the interpretation of history because I'm fascinated by how we reinterpret the past. And I ended up going to this historic restaurant here on the East Coast that was basically the same time period that I had worked in. So I'd grown very, very accustomed to how things from that time tasted. And I was I was amped. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have this food that I remember. And they had things on the menu that did exist in the 1830s, like beef stew or apple pie but when they served them they were flavored the way that they are flavored in the 21st century not Mm -hmm. in the 19th century so like that apple pie was missing rose water um and it was missing maybe nutmeg and did it with the beef stew like nutmeg and mace appeared a lot in meat recipes too those flavors are so typical of that time period and then things like marjoram and savory this sort of herbal palette that i remember wasn't there and i just remember thinking well gosh like why can't someone just do this right and I was like, uh-oh. And I spent basically <laughs> the next nine months of my life, you know, working my butt off. And I produced this, um, it was what we now call a pop-up restaurant in 2005 in Cleveland that served colonial area food for a contemporary audience. And then that has been the jumping off point for my whole career. Um, really wanting to bridge this gap between culinary history and foodie culture. Understanding where our food comes from and why. Knowing that we can pull from the past in the same way that we sort of pull from other cultures for inspiration finding making this connection in this gap that used to exist between these these two groups of people well it's it's very interesting that um the way that you fall into different yeah. you know in different careers and i'm very glad that you leaned to the history but you <laughs> do you. it with a very artful mind i do i do <laughs> and I, I when i first moved to new york i was working for grub street as a videographer so i got the time to be in some of the best kitchens in new york city and talk to the best chefs and it, it produced to me such a respect for the work they do and also a realization 
that that was not for me. <laughs> the hours, the labor yeah. in the kitchen, you really have to love it. So although I may have thought about um, going to culinary school or opening my own restaurant, after those couple years seeing that work, I was like, you know what? You guys are doing a bang up job. This is <laughs> not for me. I will not be happy here. That's, so that's, that's how I ended good, up where I am. Good realization. It was. It yeah. was. Um, out of these flavors that you, well, the list that you culled, because you said you had 30, I don't know. Yeah. Eight flavors has a better ring to it than 30 flavors. 30 flavors you, you know, you'd have to it, plot through. It really <laughs> just kind of, and you know what? Yes, I didn't want to do a book that was sort of a, a listicle book, you know, all these little stories. Yeah. I wanted to create one long story. And to be honest, there really wasn't a lot of fight. Like things just sort of fell into their place and... And when I picked out the eight, eight made sense. They fell chronologically. Yeah. It just happened. Although we do have a little repeat here with chili and sriracha. We got a lot of hot spices and black, some of the black peppers. But was there one flavor that you covered that kind of won your heart? I mean, I think it probably is sriracha. Uh, which is one that's not everybody who reads the book might have heard of yet, but now this will make you very aware of it. Um, and it's another story that really hasn't been put to paper. There's been some articles about it, but nothing like this. And so I'm glad to be the historian to sort of enter this into our culinary history chronicles. Um, Sriracha, as I mentioned, is produced entirely in Southern California, and it's made by the Tran family. Uh, David Tran is from Vietnam. And he was making hot sauce to support his family before and during the Vietnam War. After the fall of Saigon, uh, his family is ethnically Chinese, and they were one of the groups targeted with the rise of communism and were being forcibly removed mm. from the country. So he escaped with his family on a dilapidated freighter and sailed for Hong Kong. When they showed up, Hong Kong said, turn around, we don't want you here. And the ship uh, dropped anchor in international waters and just waited. And luckily, Hong Kong was deemed an international port of refuge. And so they were admitted after about a month of being on the ocean. And uh, his family, by 1980, was placed here in America, actually in Boston in January, which is, to me, is really palpable. Cruel. (laughs) From Vietnam, from Hong Kong to Boston in January. His brother, though, got placed outside of Los Angeles. And David Tran told me all he was thinking was, I have to do something to support my family. He called up his brother and he said, do they have hot peppers out there? His brother said, yes. This was January 1980. By February 1980, he was making sriracha hot chili sauce. And he says that since that first day, he's not been able to make enough to keep up with demand. Well, there was a a, a little issue there for a while. In fact, you went out and you you covered the story where... Um, the community was complaining about the the smells emanating from the yeah. The interestingly, I didn't go out to cover that story, but it happened to happen at the same time. Well, I guess we talked about it here. Then. Yeah. Well, for me, you covered it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And afterwards, I wrote about it because um, they had just moved to a new factory in Irwindale, a massive, massive, massive factory. Um, it looks like that last scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, where there's this big <laughs> warehouse. That's what it is. Um, and there was a lot of weird politics going on at that time, but the complaints were were that um, their chili grinding season lasts from about August to November. And the community was complaining that the fumes from the factory were, um, people were tearing up, they were coughing, things like that. I can't speak for the day-to-day experience, but about a week before that story broke, that's when I was there, you know, in the Mm. height of this chili grinding season. 
And uh, Irwindale is very, very industrial. And so when I got out of my car, it didn't smell like chili peppers. It smelled like um, like burning tires to be to be honest with you and the only place i smelled that hot chili um smell was in the grinding room which is an inside room that has like kind of a special set of doors to get into to contain that really abrasive smell um so i just kind of put it out there i'm like hey i was just there and i think there are probably some other things going on there beyond that though this factory they're going to outgrow their new factory, which was new in 2013, uh, within another two to three years. So they have, I'm sure, already thinking about how to branch out if they need to start a new factory. One of the things that's been stopping them is that all the peppers for sriracha are grown by one family farm in Southern California. They've had a partnership, Craig Underwood and David Tran. Craig's the farmer. David's the founder of sriracha. They've had a partnership for 30 years together. Um, So they've been working together. So they have to figure out how expanding with the demand is really a challenge for the farmers too, to yeah. be able to grow that many peppers for how much Americans want to consume this hot sauce. Yeah. Well, you said maybe some of our listeners don't know what it is yet. And yet then again, some people who didn't know about it 10 years ago, it's on yeah. the table. You it's know, on it's, the table. It's one of their regular spots. So that's the growth is, is really It's on remarkable. the shelves in Walmart. So yeah. by, I feel like by anyone's standards, that is American. You can get it. You can get a really good deal for it at Walmart, actually. Right. Yeah. Well, this is just one of the yeah. many stories that you tell. And it's it, it really is um, an interesting take on the mosaic America that we really are. Yeah. And not, um, not the America that we think we read about in in the history books yeah and, to and me all of these flavors, flavors and all of these people are americans and i think that especially now that that's a really important thing to remember that our country is not about homogeny it's about diversity and that's what has made us so great for so long yeah and great rich culture of food too yeah thank you sarah loma it's My always pleasure. a pleasure and the name of the book again is eight flavors the untold stories of american cuisine it's out with Simon & Schuster. You can get it wherever books are sold. Oh, nice commercial. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And I would like to thank my ever so generous engineer, David Tedashore. David has uh, put all these shows together so well over the years. And please, if you like the show, go visit the website, heritageradionetwork.org, where we have thousands of more shows on many different uh, topics, all usually about food. And we are a member-supported network. So please, you'll see the little red heart beating in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that red heart and give what you can. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.